Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. This is Kent Dobson. And I want to offer a little reflection this morning. Well, it's morning for me. It's Monday morning. And I want it to be on my theme of ancient compost, where I'm allowing the the nutrients of of the wisdom tradition and of the biblical stories and images and other ancient stories and images to offer nutrients to our depleted soil, our spiritually and emotionally and psychologically depleted soil of the 21st century. That's not to deride the place we find ourselves in. Who gets, who gets to have a say in the world that we show up in? But at least from my point of view, the, the soil is uh, quite thin. It's prone to being windblown like the dust bowl. And, and the contemporary, um, well, I guess I think we can feel that as contemporary people, but the contemporary solutions offered to us by, by mainstream culture uh, don't seem to have the nutrients, don't seem to be connected to what's vital and what's old and what's ancient and what's real and uh, what's of depth and and it's just one of the stances I take in the world to be a sort of defender of the ancient ways and um, yeah and hence this this ongoing series ancient compost and today I want to talk about the trees are on fire I'm going to read a little passage from Annie Diller a pretty famous passage and talk a little bit about the Moses story and and if you listen to my last podcast I sort of made a promise that I was going to make my podcast a more regular. Um, contribution. I was going to, well, I was going to make a more regular contribution to my podcast and in part just in response to the overwhelming support that I've been receiving from my patrons and who are supporting me on various levels and make this thing happen every time I make it, which was, you know, once a month, generally, sometimes twice a month, but I'm going to, I'm going to put a little more effort into the frequency here. Um, and, and also, not just support from my patrons, but just people who say, hey, I like your podcast and are willing to share it and talk about it and pass it on and occasionally offer me some suggestions and comments and questions through my website, emailing me. So anyway, uh, that's where things stand. And, and I, I want to talk today, I guess one of the background questions, a couple of background questions would be, what makes a place sacred? And... Is it possible to attune ourselves to uh, to the to a kind of opening into the sacred, or align ourselves in such a way that the possibility of the sacred, the mysterious, the eternal, the numinous, what the Celts called a a thin veil, would in fact be quite thin, and maybe even something like a a portal opens up and those are some background questions and 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 this particular podcast I don't know how long I'll make it um, but I hope by the end to even offer some suggestions occasionally at least when I work one-on-one with people I'll often have very simple invitations that sometimes are very specific and and also there there's a sense where there are some general categories so I want to I want to offer some general suggestions for uh, how to attune our awareness uh, in such a way 
that the possibility of bumping into into the sacred or the the gates or doors of of our perception would shift in such a way that we find ourselves in in something larger after all i mean that's probably the simplest definition of a transcendent experience we transcend the the ego's small plans and the ego's relatively small capacity to be attuned to what's real and of course we need the ego if you've listening if you've been listening to me for a while i'm not a you know i'm not one of those uh, teachers that derides the ego it's what makes us essentially human and and it just is a can be and often is too small of a story and and what an encounter with the mystery or the sacred or the transcendent does on one level is is fracture or crack or open the ego and when we find ourselves in a larger world or we find ourselves pulled down often into into the underworld or um or it, to use old biblical language, the sky is torn open and a voice from heaven whispers and, and perhaps only we hear it. And, and something of our, our life is not the same. It shifts our center of gravity from the ego's center to another center of being that's closer in alignment with our own depths and, and with the depths of, of the mystery of life. So um, let's begin... I've already begun, I suppose, but let's, I want to read a passage from, from Annie Dillard. This is from uh, A Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, and this came out in 1974, so just two years before I was born, so I'm dating myself here. And, and um, she's, in this passage, talking about one of these thin places, and of a kind of transcendent experience. She goes on after this passage to describe the reality that the moment we begin to describe what's hard to describe, it, we lose it. It's like a vapor in the wind that we're, that we're trying to grasp or, or like sand, you know, very fine sand slipping through our, our fingers, that sort of thing. So here's the passage. When her doctor took her bandages off and led her into the garden, the girl was no longer blind, but saw the tree with lights in it. I mean, this is in and of itself just a, a fascinating sentence, a kind of childhood experience of, of moving from, from blindness to sight. And, and the kind of sight had a particular quality to it, that the, the trees had lights in it. And, you know, it sort of reminds me as, as an aside of this healing story of Jesus where he, he it's kind of a double healing, and he, and he and he puts mud on a man's eyes, and I think it's one of the mud passages. I, I can't quite remember off the top of my head, but let's just say he puts mud on his eyes and spits in the mud, and, and he asks the man, what do you see? And he see, says, I see trees, like people walking around. And, and so Jesus sort of tries again, and, and really this story is about the failure of the disciples to perceive what's real. It's, it's really much more about their perception of, of what's happening. They are like... Um, they're like the man. They're partially blind, or they partially see, and 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 Jesus is sort of revealing this this way of seeing to his disciples through this experience with the man. Of course, you know, also the man is is experiencing a kind of a kind of transformation around sight, and and there's there's a movement from darkness to some clarity to sort of full clarity, and 
And here she seems to see something quite mysterious. Maybe even we might guess that there, the, there's something of the tree's essence that's being seen here. And, and so she goes on and says, it was for this tree I searched. So she's saying, I, I am this girl. And, and ever since this experience I've, I've been searching, it was for this tree I searched through the peach orchards of summer, in the forests of fall and down winter and spring for years. You know, I don't know if you've ever had a glimpse of something that took your breath away, that leveled you, that pinned you to the earth. And just now in my, in my memory, and to remember is to experience truth. Not that all memories are, you know, what we would call actual events. Sometimes the memory is, has a way of, of conflating or um, mixing things up. But I just mean it in the old Greek sense that deep, deep in the underworld, there's a, there's a river of memory, and that's the word for truth. And so, you know, to remember is, is to experience the truth. And I'm, I just remembered um, one of my uh, wilderness fasts, solo wilderness fasts in Utah. And, you know, day and night gets, I mean, they're demarcated, obviously, by light. But the sense of time is all upside down when you're when you're in the wilderness alone for several days, and in my case, without eating, and and once when the moon set, just for you know, without any effort on my part or or any thought or thinking or practice or experimentation or special religious thoughts or remembering quotations, I felt as if I was pinned to the earth by the cosmos, by the stars. It's like there was something about the the sheer volume and magnitude and luminosity of what we would call the milky way and there were so many stars present that for a moment all of the constellations that i ordinarily look for or orient toward were had receded into the background of the canvas of 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 the entire cosmos whatever was coming into my perception and, you know, it, that's the kind of thing that's so unexpected that you go looking for it. You know, it's like every once in a while I look up when I'm, when I'm awake at night and the stars are right and, and I, I, it's like that memory comes back and it's like searching. It's like, and here she is saying, I was searching for the tree with lights in it. And then one day I was walking along Tinker Creek and thinking of nothing at all. And isn't that often how it goes? It's, it's the place of no thought. The monkey mind quiets. And, and then I saw the tree with lights in it. I saw the backyard cedar where the morning doves roost, charged and transfigured, each cell buzzing with flame. I stood on the grass with the lights in it. Grass that was holy fire, like W-H-O-L-L-Y, and maybe also, you know, you hear that and, and you have the, the hint of the sacred, of holy, H-O-L-Y. I stood on the grass with the, with the lights in it, grass that was holy fire, utterly focused and utterly dreamed. It was less like seeing than like being 
seen for the first time, knocked breathless by a powerful glance. Do you know what she's talking about? It's not just seeing something magnificent, but it's like something is looking back at you. A kind of consciousness or presence or quality or, or, or vitality or, or presence. Maybe that's the simplest word for it. After all, the, what is the universe but presence? And what is each individual being in a universe but presence? And, and, and even whole landscapes and, and certain bends in the river have a kind of presence. And, and every once in a while, it's like, I'm not just seeing something, but I'm being seen by something. Sometimes we have this experience with very direct animal encounters. I had a mother grizzly and, and, and her cub come into the river once where I was fishing and, and there wasn't really time to move. And, and it's one of those situations you, you read about that are the most dangerous. And, and she looked at me in a certain way. And I can tell you that I knew she wasn't going to kill me. It was the quality of of the of the look and all i could do was just be present to it to be seen like this and to to see in the way i was seeing anyway the flood of fire abated she goes on but i'm still spending the power it's like something in our cells just keeps recycling this kind of energy. Gradually, the lights went out in the cedar and the colors died and the, the cells unflamed and disappeared. I was still ringing. I had my whole life a bell and never knew it until that moment. I was lifted and struck. I have since only very rarely seen the tree with lights in it. The vision comes and goes, mostly goes, but I live for it. For the moment, the mountains open and a new light roars in spate through the crack and the mountains slam. I, I, I want to walk through the world like this. Not manufacturing or creating or faking but with my heart and my being open enough to the possibility of being struck like this. It's, it's like our essence is shaped like a bell, or to use another kind of metaphor, it's like we are a tuning fork, and, and one fork goes right through the center of our being, and the other end of the tuning fork is the world, and and sometimes something, and a moment, a tree, a cedar, a, the, the eyes of a, of a bear 12 feet away, and the tuning fork is struck, and our whole body is, is alive in a way we didn't even know was possible, and, and we can still feel the, the power of those reverberations, and, and we live for it to be touched by the sacred like this, by the holy, by the numinous, by the transcendent, by 
the fracturing of our of our ego and 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 entering into a world we didn't know was there it's like there are worlds within worlds within worlds and and god that would talk about the mystery of being and and perhaps you know a little of what i'm talking about and and sometimes it's not just the trees are on fire but but sometimes even even pain and death have this kind of luminous quality a, a kind of they're lit from within and they're they're lit with a kind of meaning it's like yes life is meaningful and i'm not the agent or the manufacturer of meaning i'm at best the interpreter <laughs> and not even a very good one at that but what would it be like to walk in the world like this i, I think you know to use some jungian language in part this is the religious instinct you know jung says that the religious impulse or instinct toward the sacred toward the holy toward the toward the mystery is in fact an instinct like sex and food and shelter and it's that raw and human and natural and normal and 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 i think that kind of craving that kind of instinctual craving is alive like never before and and the ancient ways whisper that this is possible. And that's the story of Moses, you know. That's I can't read this passage in Tinker Creek without thinking about Moses and the burning bush, the tree, the you know, the the oldest story of a tree being on fire and it's it's not just that that the that Moses's tree was on fire fire like um like oh that's um you know happens from time to time in the desert you know hope it doesn't lead to a you know a brush fire it's much more like it's lit from within and and the the story of Moses I'll I'll read just a, t a tiny bit of it in a second just so I can let the of course I'm going to read in English not in Hebrew but just let the as close as we can the the words do their own do their own work but it's intriguing to me that Moses is one of those figures that is caught between worlds. He's born Jewish but has an Egyptian name and is raised in an Egyptian household in a time where there were just the haves and the haves-nots. There was not the middle class. You had the slave class, essentially, and you had the ruling class. And and Moses, as a Jew, is born into the slave class. And 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 I we know from archaeology and Egyptian records, they really had their own towns and their own kind of... Um, economies and and practices and and rites and rituals and meals and it was a separate a separate society and these worlds were very divided and so here Moses grows up knowing he doesn't quite belong and not knowing what to do about it and and one day what rises up in him is a kind of instinctual reaction to the beating of a Jewish slave by an Egyptian and he and he kills the Egyptian and is frightened for obvious reasons and and runs for his life and and you might think well the story's over he's out of Egypt and and he's running from from well you know from killing someone and and just as a little aside this is the same character Moses that one day will will have this experience on Mount Sinai who will carry the tablets that say do not commit murder you know only a murderer would know what that means and the potential that each human being has for this kind of of uh 
malevolent and dark action in the world. Moses knows, and so he, he carries those tablets and with a kind of solemnity, we can imagine. So in any case, he's starting a new career as a shepherd, and you know, the, much of the, the biblical, um, much of the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is, revolves around shepherds, and even says in, in, in Exodus, actually in Genesis, that shepherds are detestable to Egyptians, because Egyptians are, are, are sophistication and culture and permanence and, and pomp and circumstance and big buildings and, and shepherds are nomadic and they go, they follow the wind and, and the water and, and their own sheep and <laughs> they're, they're free in a way that when you finally build that big house, you're not, you know, you're enslaved to a kind of self-protection and, and so there's a kind of detesting, um, you know, the ruling class detests the kind of nomadic freedom. Uh, at least that's what I'm bringing into, into the story and a little bit in my imagination. And, and by the way, imagination is essential for reading these ancient stories. And we, we often don't think about that, especially if you're a Christian or you're, we're raised religious and we're often th taught to ask, well, what does it mean? And how do I apply it? And what's the truth? What's the non-negotiable truth? And, when all the while the the Bible is in a way awakening our imagination, which is a which is one of the windows of knowing, thinking, feeling, sensing, and imagination, or even intuition, uh, we might say. And yeah, so um, it's it's when Moses is out, you know, what he probably thinks is carrying on with the next chapter of his life, and Egypt far behind. It says Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he had led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb. This is one of the names for Mount Sinai or the region of Mount Sinai. And the mountain of God, in other words. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire. Now angels, um, you know, we have... 2,000 years of Christendom and Christian art to, to color our, our understanding of, of an angel. But if I just take the plain Hebrew, it just says messenger, and anything can be a messenger. You know, I suppose it could be a being, a winged being, but anything that acts as a kind of messenger. And so a messenger of the Lord appeared to him in flames from within the bush, and here you, you, you can hear the probably conscious or perhaps unconscious allusions in the Annie Dillard passage that somehow the light is within something. And Moses saw that the bush was on fire and that it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And, and already I, I, I think it's important to wonder something like, well, what kind of attention necessitates this encounter? Well, you could say, first of all, very simply, it requires a kind of attention, a quality of intention, and maybe a certain amount of emptiness and, and silence and quiet and it's a sort of observation. I was suddenly um, remembered 
remembering when I was a kid and used to hunt, you know, and various animals and track them. And it's a kind of, a kind of attention is required where you really have to notice, not only do you notice the external world, but you become acutely aware of the internal landscape. It's like your own, the movements of your body and the noise that you're making and the, the sound of your breath and the, the motion of your chest and all of which can alert the wild world to your presence. And, and that's what I think is interesting about this passage. It says that Moses noticed and he thought, well, I'm going to go over and see this strange sight. So it's like the external and the internal landscape are quiet enough. It's like walking along doing nothing in particular, like Annie Dillard says that you sort of accidentally notice just the way the world is. I suppose it's probably not all that strange to see a bush that's on fire but in the desert, but it certainly is one that's not being consumed. And how would you know that at first? And how would you be aware that this thing is on fire but not consumed without, a, without some time, without some patience, without some attention? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, Moshe, do not come any closer. Take off your shoes, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at the Lord. So talk about a, a fracturing of the ego's reality here. I'm recently married. I'm Moses here. I'm recently married. I'm got a job to do. I'm gainfully employed by my father-in-law. And, and I'm out wandering, doing what shepherds do and protecting the flock and feeding the flock and sleeping uh, with the flock and and suddenly my how I thought my life should go is fractured and cracked open and flooded with a kind of luminous light and a voice that says my name like I know who you are I see you as much as you see the bush that's on fire, but that's not being consumed, I see you, I look back, I know you, says God, says Yahweh, the God of the, these ancient Hebrews. And in this moment, the, the place is experienced as holy. And you know, God has to tell him, this is holy ground, this is sacred ground. You've reached the realm of the divine in an ordinary bush that's in the middle of the desert. Kind of, I don't know if you've been to really deep desert. Like I've been to the deep deserts of Sinai and the sheer vastness and silence that's present. Even a, a plane at 30,000 feet is, it will strike you as disruptive to the sheer magnificence and emptiness and 
enliveliness of, of the desert itself. And that's where Moses finds himself, and he, and he finds that thin place, the place between worlds, between the ordinary and the sacred. And one of the things that I, I often think about with sacred space is, I, th- I think it's pretty common to say, well, all spaces are sacred. You know, it's very Protestant in a way. And, and um, you know, we don't need church buildings and we don't need all those, those smells and bells and incense and, you know, chimes and markers and steeples and marble and mosaics and, you know, everything is sacred. But sometimes when you say everything is sacred, it's also a way of saying, well, then nothing is sacred. And I, I don't encounter the sacredness of anything at all. The same with like, you know, saying that everything is spiritual, it's like, well, um, what's the difference between that and, and nothing is spiritual? And how would you know when you bump into what is spiritual? And how would you know when you bump into what is not spiritual? And, and it seems too easy. And I think, I think part of what human beings did from, this is kind of like an almost an evolutionary view of, of religion and or a long view of of religion is when they had moments where suddenly the tree was lit from within and they were struck with with the sacred and with the divine and then they marked spots like this and they said this happened here and and there's something about this particular place that teaches something us teaches us something about the world but not without the particularity you know I, I first got this idea from from Pete Rollins, who was on my podcast a while back, a friend of mine. And, uh, you know, I just heard him say, as almost an aside, that we can't jump too quickly to the universal. We need the particular. The particular is the way in. And this particular tree and this particular patch of sand or rock or stone or granite or whatever he was standing on, and that is the place to take your shoes off and to consent to the experience that you're actually having in the moment that you're having it. You know, it's not time for a journal entry or to put up a building or it's to consent to, to the numinous. I, I, I've used that word several times and I first heard it from, from Jung, but it means to wink. Uh, those are the, the origins. Have you ever had the, the universe wink at you? It's like, it's, life is not what you thought. And it's just like a, a kind of gentle, I think loving and occasionally fierce, that's my favorite combo, loving and love and fierceness, and it's not what you think. And sometimes we can't help but take our shoes off for, for the place we're standing is holy ground, and, and we will not be the same. We will not be the same. And perhaps like Annie Dillard, we will be on a strange and a long and winding road just to get back to that place, knowing we full well we can't conjure it up, or but we can perhaps walk in a certain way with a certain kind of posture that is open to that sort of possibility. And, and I think it is important to honor such places. You know, the few, the few times where I've had something like this happen, where maybe like, St. Paul, you know, scales fell from my eyes, you know, and I saw and I was seen just for a moment. And you want to mark it. You want to say, yeah, this was holy ground. And, 
And even if I ever, and sometimes I do, get a chance to return to just little places like that, I remember and, and I want to honor it. And sometimes I do. And I'll say a prayer or, I don't know, offer a kind of gesture or recall the story or something like that. And I think that reaction by Moses to take the shoes off is the right kind of move. It's, that's partly what I mean by consent and by allowing yourself to be, you know, confronted. And after all, you don't have to read much of the Bible to know that, that the divine the mystery of the divine, who has several names and is hard to pin down, is hard to name, and is hard to know, and is, of course, culturally um, colored by the worldview of the ancient writers. And One thing that you can say is that it disrupts. And sometimes it's so disruptive that, that out of the mouth of the disruption, of the divine, of the disruptor, comes the phrase, do not be afraid. Now, if you have to say, do not be afraid, you know what an experience of God is like. It's, it can strike the right kind of fear ringing through your body. Talk about a bell. Talk about a tuning fork. Talk about a bear looking you in the face. It's like, yeah, all right. Um, you know how the, the body sits up in a certain way. So my point is, yeah, there's, the divine can be a disruptor. And even a disruption of love is a kind of disruption. I mean, how many, when was the last time you were really loved through and through? Well, that's a shocker of an event. That'll run you through like a sword. That'll prick you like the, like the arrow of, of Eros, you know? It's like Jesus at the baptism hears a voice that says, this is my son whom I love. Maybe he had never been shot through with that kind of arrow his entire life. Maybe Joseph didn't know how to love. Joseph, after all, by the time Jesus is an adult, is MIA. We don't know what happened to him. You know, maybe he died and, and maybe he just, I don't know, wasn't that involved. And, and here the divine runs Jesus through with an arrow and yeah, that can also scare you. So I'm just, you know, Human, to be human is to experience the complexity of, of, of an emotional and, and physiological and somatic way of being. We are complex, and, and love and fear and longing and desire, and they're all mixed up here. And sometimes all we can do is just take our shoes off and say, oh, the world is not what I thought. My life is not what I thought. What's real is not what I thought was real, and what's possible is not what I, you know, what I thought was possible. And the course of my own life, what I thought I'd be doing, like who knows what Moses th Moses thought? Like I, I don't know. Guess I'm going to be a good shepherd, and 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 hit, from this point on, it's like he can't go back. It shifts his center of gravity to something else and, and aligns him with a deeper purpose and begins to give him instructions even about what's next and go talk to Moses, I mean, go talk to Pharaoh and here Moses has a speech impediment and the very thing you don't want to have if you, you know, have to be a public speaker and, and yeah, the course of his life 
begins to take on a sort of destiny. And, but not without this moment. And, and not without feeling the tension between the particular and the universal here again. We need the particular. I think one of the scariest questions you can ask is, what is my actual experience of God? It's also quite freeing. What is my actual experience of the divine, of the mystery, of the numinous? Even if you don't even know what, what the word God means anymore, I'd say, hey, welcome to, to the unknowing of God, which is just, an, just as an essential expression as the knowing of God, as the, the early stages of God, and God is like this, and God is like that, and the, the great saints and mystics and ancient voices say, and that too has to go, that, that too has its place, um, but will be taken. And um, yeah, so what is your particular experience like right now? And I think even offering or allowing yourself to reflect upon, well, when have you tasted what's, what was outside, <clears throat> excuse me, Wow, I'm back here after <laughs> five minutes of coughing. Nothing like um, mentioning Moses's <clears throat> speech impediment and then being unable to speak. Yeah, God is disruptive, and <laughs> even the nature of our own life is it disruptive and. <clears throat> And hear my voice is wavering. Talk about being human here. I, I'm thinking about my dad. It's like <clears throat> my dad died of ALS. And um, one of the horrible things among 75 others is that for most people, their voice is taken. <clears throat> Sometimes that's the first to go. And um, and I think for my dad, too, I mean, he made, he made a living, much like I am doing, using his voice. And <clears throat> talk about mirroring back to him and, and to me, even in this moment, in a very small and minor way. Uh, yeah, who are you beneath your voice? You're kind of the voice beneath the voice, if there is such a thing. And who are you without um, the persona and the masks that you put on and that give you a, a sense of identity and a role and a place and a name? And yeah, that's like being confronted. <clears throat> and it's like God saying, Moshe, like Moses, listen to me. We could even wonder, it's sort of like, what the hell are you doing out here? Who do you think you are? What do you think your life is about? What are you hiding from and running from? It's sort of like that. And, and sometimes life will just do it to you. And sometimes it's quite tragic, like with my dad. And, you know, you have to, you have to begin to look for the deeper streams, the deeper wells. Otherwise... <clears throat> I don't know, it's like um, when we're too identified with the external form, 
it's a terrifying place. So anyway, back to, back to the story here. And I think, I think I was wrestling with the particular and the, and the universal, and we need those particular places. We need to find moments where we've learned to take our shoes off and what that does is open us up to, to a universe. And this is what, what I got from Pete Rollins. We need to have a burning bush experience to know that all, all the trees are on fire. And I think, I for one think, I don't, I don't believe in, in a kind of higher level plane of enlightenment that you can just live full time knowing and experiencing and tasting uh, that everything is on fire, that every tree is on fire, that every moment and every breath and every being you meet is, a, is, <clears throat> is radiating from within. I think, personally, it's much more like Annie Dillard, that it, it goes more than it comes. And maybe that's just part of, part of our humanness, part of our, our deep human nature, that we can taste and know and experience the numinous and the transcendent. And, and we also know what it's like to just be very ordinary and cough in the middle of trying to make a podcast and um, take out the trash and pay bills. And, and, and I think an experience of the numinous does begin to color the ordinary. And perhaps what happens over time is more and more and more of the ordinary begins to, to glow from within. And so maybe I just want to mention a few things. I didn't want this podcast to be too long. Just to practice. And before I give you this practice, I want to quote some James Finley, which I've probably done before on this, on hints and guesses. But um, Finley says, you cannot make the moment of oceanic oneness happen. So I'll interpret. You cannot make the tree. You can't light the tree on, on fire from within. You, you can't do it. You can't make the moment of oceanic oneness happen. Just like if you, <clears throat> it's kind of like dating, you know. You try too hard, it's not going to work, you know. Um, but you have to try some. So he says you cannot make the moment of oceanic oneness happen, but you can offer the stance of least resistance. Something like that. I might not get the quote exactly, but that's the nature of it, the gist of it. You cannot make the moment of oceanic oneness happen, but you can offer the path of least resistance. And if I, I remember, I'll, I'll give you one more James Finley quote, one of my all-time favorites, right at the end. Let me jot it down so I don't forget. Okay. So here's a practice. Um, it's a practice uh, that involves uh, attention. And it's one that I do regularly. And it's like I need to listen to my own podcast to remind me to go out and be in the world in a certain way. And, and we get hints it, from Annie Dillard saying that she wandered in, among trees in all seasons with a kind of a longing and a kind of hope and a kind of craving. And so this is a wandering practice, and it looks a little something like this. Go out to a wild place and wander. And um, when I say wander, I mean really just that, uh, not like destination, 
necessarily, not like I need to climb to the top of something, which is often my impulse, or, but to really wander and, and even to, to be surprised where we might encounter the wild. I mean, but what counts as a wild place? And if you go to a park nearby, and where does the wild begin? And, um, and yeah, where, where is that place? And how do you know when you're in it? And that's what I mean by wandering, just opening up to the world. And, and the simplest thing you can do is begin to, almost like a kind of internal Rolodex, go through your five senses, and, and really all five, you know. What do I see? And walk for a while, really bringing attention to what you see and shifting that to to what you hear, any order, it doesn't matter, and, and smelling and, and tasting and and your your senses, the feel of of the of the bark of a tree and touch and and maybe even going through the the cycle here. Several times, just, man, when was the last time you really allowed yourself to bring conscious attention to what's happening all the time, to the nature of your own experience, your five senses? And maybe if uh, with a little luck, you can open up more than one sense at a time. And it's possible to, to wander with all five senses and uh, with a kind of a conscious attention to, to your five senses and, and allowing the actual experience that you're having <clears throat> to shape you and to speak to you and um, and allow yourself to be drawn. This is the next really part of the the practice here. I first learned practices like this. I'm sort of um, coloring it a bit with with my own way of putting things from uh, Animus Valley Institute, from from my guide training program out there, and from the many experiences that I've been on. Often, much of what happens for people happens out on wanders. And so, yeah, you're wandering as, as if the world is alive and, and if, as if you're offering a posture of, of least resistance to the way things are. And, and you might want to allow yourself to be drawn to a place. And, and it could be anything at all, a, a certain stone or a stump or the way the moss... Um, is covering the the forest floor or or another you know animal or bird or snake or who knows and and you'll know when you feel drawn because you feel drawn and you're walking in such a way that you're you're much more fully in tune with your own humanness and <clears throat> and when you find yourself drawn to a place notice notice what you see you're or notice the fullness of, of what you're able to perceive and what's happening in you. It's, it's that conversation between the externally and the internal, like I described in the Moses story. And Well, what is this strange sight? And what, am I, what, is, what bodily sensations am I having? And what do I notice? And sometimes it can be help to, helpful to even speak to a place. I will often do this, especially if nobody's around. And I suppose if somebody is around, they'll just think oh, there's a crazy person talking in the woods and that would be me. Yeah, and I might say a few things about what I notice and what strikes me about <clears throat> the way the 
um, the light moves through through the canopy, through the leaf canopy, or whatever. I don't know, whatever it is that I'm I'm noticing, and 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 here's a question you would begin to carry: What relationship is emerging here? How how or in what ways or in what fashion am I related to to the other? What is the quality of the relationship? What do I sense is the quality of the relationship? After our we we are, we know this from a scientific point of view, deeply interwoven and interrelated. And and most people like me like saying that. But many of us have very little experience in knowing and tasting and feeling the ways in which we're interwoven. And yet it's right there within the realm of possibility. Um, maybe there maybe there's a certain quality to the relationship that that you feel in a particular place you might even feel like taking your shoes off i'm not saying go and manufacture this but it can help you know it's like wait what am i what am i experiencing here and and sometimes it you might even get a little hint about the nature of the relationship and how you might respond. It's just like, like when you fall in love, you, it's as it's a relational dynamic that shape shifts who we are, who we think we are. And it's as much responsive as it, as it is. Um, <clears throat> I don't know the opposite reminding ourselves that we're not trying to make anything happen. We're, what are we doing? We're just out wandering in a wild place, trying to feel what it is to be who we are and, and offering ourselves and a certain kind of posture to the world as it is and to be drawn to a place and to deepen the quality of our relationship with a place and, and to respond to a place in the way that, that seems right and fitting and, and, it's not like if you go out and do what I'm describing, the cedar tree will be lit from within or, the, or out of the, the burning silver maple, a voice will speak to you. <clears throat> but sometimes something like that happens, and probably when we're not trying too hard. And, and whatever happens, you know, what consciousness am I going to bring to that? This is what's happening for me. And, you might notice all kinds of things like your boredom or your, or your thought patterns or, um, you know, embarrassingly, I was telling someone the other day on one of my vision fasts and, and I remember just right in the middle of the day for a long stretch of the day working on my resume in my head until I became conscious of, oh my God, I'm working on my resume, you know, like um, the whole world is on fire and I'm worried about my CV, you know? Yeah, because um, the ego can be that possessive of our consciousness. And so you're noticing perhaps that and, and, and letting that go, but not just letting it go in a, in, a, in a deep meditative stance where you're letting all things go, but you're letting that go. And, and in this case, entering into your senses and into the body and into what's happening for you. And, um, and maybe a certain amount of faith is involved that that to walk in the world like this is is the right kind of posture and um, 
is to be a little closer to the sacred way of walking and the ancient way of walking and the possibility of bumping into the holy uh, uh, and, and stumbling onto holy ground. And don't you want to walk like this through life? Or, or to quote Mary, Mary Oliver, do you only want to, what does she say? I don't want to end up having only visited this world. Yeah, me too. I don't want to be a visitor. I want to be a participant. I want to be um, a relational participant in the mystery of life and in the mystery of my own life. And <clears throat> to the best of my very human and frail uh, way. Um, so that's the practice. That's the very simple practice to wander in a wild place and to really wander within your five senses and to allow yourself to be drawn to something out out <clears throat> out in the wild world and and to notice what you notice and to deepen into the to the emerging relationship that is happening in the moment and <clears throat> and to respond in kind and and allow yourself to be shaped by by the experience as much as you are shaping the world just by your own presence and to deepening that that craving um, to walk to walk a certain way to to have a certain quality of attention toward what's ultimately real and true and beautiful and and meaningful. So, all right, as promised, I'm going to end with a James Finley quote, one of the best of all times. So, how might you go about this? How might you go about any spiritual practice, you might say, or, or if you don't like the word spiritual, practice. How might you go about this? Well, he says, uh, quit trying. Okay, well, quit trying. Quit trying not to try. Okay, quit trying not to cry. Try. <laughs> quit trying. Quit trying not to try. And then he says, quit quitting. <laughs> So I'll leave it at that. Thanks for tuning in.